Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. We live in an era that is marked by unending disaster and driven by conspiracy theories. You know, kind of like a Don DeLillo novel. In honor of the upcoming baseball season, the second to take place during the COVID-19 pandemic, this episode offers excerpts of a live reading of DeLillo's prologue to Underworld, Pafco at the Wall, which was performed by Billy Crudup, Zachary Levy, and Tony Shaloub at the 92nd Street Y on October 3rd, 2019. Pafco, a novella originally printed in the October 1992 issue of Harper's Magazine, offers multiple perspectives of Bobby Thompson's pennant-winning home run, known as the shot heard round the world. I'll leave further insights to the two DeLillo fans I spoke with back in fall of 2019, who both attended the 92nd Street Y event, novelist Jennifer Egan and poet Rowan Ricardo Phillips. If you'd like to see the full performance, you can visit 92y.org slash PAFCO on Sunday, March 28th, in anticipation of the audiobook release by Simon & Schuster Audio. Really, the, 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 the big takeaway for me, which is just kind of basic and not very sophisticated, is that I was just once again awed by the power of that novella, the power of the work as a whole, the enormity of, of the project and the success of it, and how much it has taught me as a writer to study that book and and Don DeLillo's work in general. I just think he's he's a towering force of American letters in the 20th century. And for me, somehow that book coming as it did in the at the very end of the 20th century felt like a just a, a quintessential look back at at the century or at least part of it. It really did feel like a sort of turning point in in American letters, at least for me. Now, you know, sometimes when we talk about turning points, what we're really talking about is our own turning points. It's that confusion of one's own life with everything else. So maybe it was just that, you know, what, that, when did that book come out? 96? 97? 97. So I had just published my first novel in the last couple of years. And I think for me, reading that book helped me to understand what I wanted to do as a writer. It was that important for me. And I feel like I'm, I, I'm still reaching for that uh, in my own work to this day. He speaks in your voice, American, and there's a shine in his eye that's halfway hopeful. It's a school day, sure, but he's nowhere near the classroom. He wants to be here instead, standing in the shadow of this old rusk hulk of a structure, and it's hard to blame him. This metropolis of steel and concrete and flaky paint and cropped grass and enormous Chesterfield packs is slain on the scoreboards, a couple of cigarettes jutting out from each. Longing on a large scale is what makes history. How did seeing it performed on stage change your understanding of the text? Like, or were there parts yeah. that kind of hit you in a different way or you appreciated it anew? Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, the the performance was so great and so layered. So, you know, when you when you get to the venue, the great 92nd Street Y, you don't really know how it's going to be portioned out. And then to see that Billy Crudup had parts and Anthony Shalhoub had parts and Zachary Levy had parts that they really kind of grew into 
as the performance went on was uh, it was really amazing. It was a text that I thought I knew well, and I'm pretty good at hearing voices, but I hadn't I hadn't felt them embodied, and it was really great to kind of not only see them embodied but see the obvious synergy that Billy, Tony, and uh, Zachary had. They were having a great time as well. And there were little things that popped up in seeing the performance and hearing it that I, I maybe didn't register all the number of times I've read this text and I've read it, I don't know how many times. But one of them was kind of like that the shift in focus from Cotter, the boy who's so clearly the protagonist at the beginning, and how his story kind of gets tied with a bow as he kind of gets back into the kind of like welcomed embrace of uptown. But that that afterlife of the story, I've kind of in my mind, the story used to end uh, there, but seeing kind of how Russ Hodges carries the story on after and how the epilogue kind of came alive in that way, because you still see the voice on stage. You still see Cotter or who was kind of embodying Cotter. And you see kind of like all of those characters that are now the past of the text still on stage. That to me was fun because it, it, it had everything that you kind of leave behind in the writing still in front of you and still kind of like reckoning with you and you reckoning with it. And I like that quite a bit. And, you know, they did the voices much better than I had them in my head. So I was incredulous at how alive it was as a performed text. I mean, it was two hours and they went so fast. I couldn't believe it. It was really, it, it was kind of an extraordinary experience. And I sat with Don, which was also, you know, I mean, I wasn't actually next to him, but I was in front of him. And it was wonderful because his wife, Barbara, was like, was laughing and responding. And I thought that was kind of a good sign. Um, it reaffirmed my sense of how much fiction can do and also of the the way in which storytelling really began as an oral tradition. And I think anything good can be held to that standard and usually really thrives in, in an, as audio. And so it was just incredibly affirming. I mean, I had first read Path Go at the Wall in Harper's, you know, when it was a standalone piece. And then I read Underworld, which I revisited, you know, many times, which is sort of a huge book for me. And then it was just amazing to be back and, and to hear it performed that way. So it was really... It just made me feel new appreciation for the work and closer to the work. And then one other thing that was different for me that has nothing to do with anything except my own life is that when I first read it, and even when I read Underworld, I really didn't know much about baseball. I've never really been a sports fan, never really attended games. But one of my kids is extremely into sports and baseball specifically. So I've gotten sort of deeply into the world of baseball and and that just brought that dimension of it so much to life. It's not so much about understanding what the person calling the game is saying, but more about appreciating kind of the spectacle of what a sports event is and especially baseball because it's outdoors, because it has this kind of, you know, American flavor and history. I felt like that aspect of it was was even more alive for me. Were you closer to the stage or were you further away? And did that impact how you sort of experienced the performance? Was it their physicality, even on the stripped down stage? Or was it more of the voice? I was pretty, I was pretty close. It was, it was the voice, but it was also, I had special company with me. I have a beloved neighbor 
Michael Cohen, who grew up a Brooklyn Dodgers fan and was in eighth grade when Bobby Thompson hit that shot. And he wasn't at the game, but he remember when the news broke. And so being with him, I know of that moment, obviously, as a moment in history, but it was very much a part of his life. And, you know, he's a dear friend of uh, mine, of my family. And it was really amazing to kind of see him seeing these performances also play themselves out. What Gleason was up to at that point, what Sinatra was up to. And he had a he had a sense of those things. I loved I loved being up close as well, too, because it gave me an opportunity to watch when I love to see when performers are what are they doing are you reading along with the text are you looking at your uh, fellow performers are you looking at the audience and you can kind of like see little things um, kind of read the movement of the eyes and read the body language and things like that which I always love to do because I feel like that's kind of like a writer's job requirement, right? Being able not just to read the room, but read a good face. And I am always looking at, in performances, I'm always looking at who's not performing. <laughs> I don't know. I just kind of uh, like that. And sitting up front like that gave me a really good window into, into that and, you know, bumped into some old friends who were there as well. And it was really nice to see the the turnout and kind of like the wide swath of people who were there. Well, I was sitting way back because I, I w- wanted to sit with Don, but actually I kind of wished that I had been closer. I, I regretted that later because I thought it actually would be great. I mean, these are fine actors. It would have been really fun to actually add the component of being able to see them really clearly but I couldn't, I mean, I, I, w- I could see them, of course, but they were kind of in the distance. So I often found myself actually closing my eyes so as not to be just straining to, to see them and sort of make it a visual experience and to let the visual experience just unfold in my mind. But I might have taken a different approach if I had been closer. And I wonder if I had been closer if I maybe would have enjoyed it less. I don't know. That's an interesting question because it really was so much of an audio experience for me that I, and I'm also, I should just say that I'm very audio oriented. I'm an audiobook addict. I, I'm always listening to books. So I, I'm inclined that way. And I'm, I'm not, I think that I rely on sight less sometimes. I'm not especially oriented toward videos or TV. So my natural inclination is to close my eyes and listen and let my imagination make the pictures. I guess it's just that interiority, which I feel like when you're dealing with a visual medium, you're always extrapolating that from that and sort of trying to get to the interior. But the thing that I love about fiction is that it starts there. That's actually what it does. You don't have to kind of triangulate backward from the visual, from the exterior to the interior. This could have been staged in so many different ways because it's kind of a polyphonic text. So what did you make of the decision to have only three people embody all of these different characters? It's interesting. You know, I didn't question or analyze that. I mean, In a way, there are sort of three realms of, or sort of three spheres of activity. And I thought in a way it made sense to both acknowledge that with three actors, one of whom sort of dominates in each sphere. But I think it was very smart not to 
tie up every end too neatly so that it's not as specific as Billy Crudup is the only person who whose voice we hear in the Cotter sections. I, I felt like that kind of looseness was actually smart because I think on some level it might have been a little fussy or distracting to have every single voice given to a different actor and to sort of make the performance of it so paramount that that we start to kind of lose the sense of the text. So I felt like it was actually very well handled. There was a kind of short period where I was getting the hang of what the idea was there. And then once I did, I felt like they they found a way to yield the most advantages without losing anything. Now that you're having me think about it, I think it was the perfect number. I think that less than three becomes about the virtuosity of the performer, which kind of takes you a little bit out of the text. And more than three really removes you from the readerly experience because then it becomes kind of like a Greek chorus and there's almost kind of like a voice for everyone. But three is the right number, I think, to give it this kind of kaleidoscopic nature where you get a sense of the rhythm of the text and you also get a sense of just kind of like the the real like joy. I don't know if I should call it jouissance because it's so much <laughs> like fun. Like they were having so much fun because the text is so much fun. You know, Path Go at the Wall is so filled with light and shadow, just like a baseball game in in the late afternoon. But three is the right number, I think, to kind of like feel and see the synergy without losing this sense of a readerly experience because three in your mind can still be one. Mm. Uh, maybe it's from things like the Holy Trinity and all this ways, all these ways throughout civilization that we've been kind of like taught to embrace three as one, you can still kind of hold on to the idea of it's one consciousness split into three. Mm. And again, the the synergy that they had, um, you know, the way that kind of like Russ and Toots and Jackie Gleason and Frank Sinatra and even uh, Hoover, who had the least to say, he had the least dialogue. I think the repartee among Sinatra and his gang which which is actually a part that I always remembered really clearly. It, it just is is even more delicious. I mean, there, because one thing about the way Don DeLillo, he's oh, he has such a great ear. His dialogue is feels very heard. And one of the things that I've I feel like I've sort of learned from him just by studying his work carefully is that he really gets the way that people don't answer each other in conversation. People sort of talk past each other around each other and amidst each other, but they don't really respond exactly. And so that that's, I think, one reason that, that his dialogue works so well. And, you know, it's no surprise that he's ventured into playwriting. The audio component of dialogue is so present in his work. So it was particularly joy, a joyful experience to hear that enacted. Between innings, the statistician offers him part of a chicken sandwich he has brought along for lunch. He says to Russ... What's the wistful look today? I didn't know I had a look. Any look. I don't feel capable of a look. Maybe hollow-eyed. Pensive, says the stat man. I love Tony Shalhoub's uh, Russ Hodges and the way that he can be kind of so present in his sickness and enthusiasm. But also, he had a good deal of heavy lifting because whether you follow baseball or not, that clip, the Giants win the pennant, the Giants win the pennant is so iconic. 
and the way that the syncopation of his delivery and hitting those beats right on the tonic note was really great. Russ feels the crowd around him, a shudder passing through the stands, and then he is shouting into the mic, and there is a surge of color and motion, a crash that occurs upward, stadium-wide, hands and faces and shirts, bands of rippling men, and he is outright shouting. His voice has a power he'd thought long gone. It may lift the top of his head like a cartoon rocket. He says, the Giants win the pennant! You praise the work as sort of coming alive as an oral piece, not just a written text. So could you talk about the role of radio and sort of seeing behind the scenes of the radio announcers at the park and sort of getting an understanding of larger view of everyone in the park as well? Well, it just kind of reminds me of what fiction can do that that nothing else actually can, which is give us the the enormity of the spectacle but also go inside the intimate inner worlds of every single person who's there if the writer so chooses so you know we're both we're watching the spectacle be made in that we're seeing the game played and we're watching the spectacle makers the people who are creating the spectacle for those who aren't there but we're also, you know, inside their minds, we're hearing the raunchy jokes. We know that the guy has a cold, you know, all these little intimate human details that are always going on for each of us. But it's the illusion of human life that somehow we kind of think we're the only ones who are burdened with, you know, these physical problems or these deep worries. And so I feel like the symphonic nature of this piece and underworld in general is just such a beautiful, vivid, it's not just a reminder, it's an enactment of all of that complexity, the way that consciousnesses unite to experience and create human life together. That's the virtuosic aspect of, of this particular piece. It's just a writer who is in his prime and can do anything doing all of it. At seemingly just at will. I mean, there's such a relaxed, almost casual feeling about the way he moves around. And yet, of course, it's utterly controlled. It's such a delight. And I think the other thing is, you know, spectacle, which is something Don is has, you know, always been really interested in. And I think really, in a certain way, all of us are because the nature of spectacle has changed enormously with mass media. And so, you know, that's something that I think we all think about. And there's been a lot of theory about that as well. Um, you know, uh, Daniel Borston's The Image or Guy Debord's Society of the Spectacle, both works from the 1960s. But the creation of spectacle, the use of spectacle and the way that media enacts and changes spectacle is something that I think, you know, is it's hard not to be con- sort of preoccupied with that as as a contemporary American. And certainly as someone who was born in the 60s, I feel like I've sort of watched a lot of that happen just in my lifetime. How would you say that DeLillo's work at large has interacted with your own? Oh, man. Um, this, might, this is a huge question. Yeah, so. no, no, no. It's, you know, I mean, De, you know, DeLillo is you know, by the sentence, he's as good as it gets. And I am very heartened. It's kind of like my, uh, I'm a Yankee fan, folks. Um, <laughs> but I have this wonderful moment where, you know, most of the times when, when you tell people you're a Yankee fan, because 
many people who are not Yankee fans, they have something to say. And then I point out, I say, I'm from the Bronx. They're my local team. And then all of a sudden the reaction completely changes. <laughs> um, and, you know, I have these local writers as, as, as well, whether it's, you know, DeLillo or Baldwin or Melville or Audrey Lord or Jane Jacobs or Stanley Kubrick. DeLillo, when I first started thinking about writing on sports, it took me a long time to even think about writing a sentence on sports because I didn't want to be kind of like a sporty guy who writes on stuff like sports. And so it was something I stayed away from for a long time. Um, and a friend recommended to me Endzone. Um, and I sat and kind of like I, I read that and I was so filled with um, sprezzatura. It, it was just kind of like <laughs> it was salty in all the right ways and it was political and existential and is really kind of caught up in its own stuff but thinking about bigger issues and from there I'd already known DeLillo's work but I'd, I'd gotten to that early stuff in in the form of end zone late and I just find he doesn't he doesn't disappoint and he has when I like this in poets too and musicians and playwriters he has an ambition to do something really really I don't want to say grand because that sounds so kind of, but he, you know, he has big ambitions, mm -hmm. um, but the ambitions play themselves out at the level of the clause and his clauses are so rich. He, he has sentences even when he says something like, you know, Mays took a mellow cut at the ball for me, you know, I always think poetry is how I understand the world. And so I kind of think about things, not by the, the paragraph or the chapter, but really by like the clause and the syllable and he's somebody I turn to a lot because even when I take a book that I, I know well, like Underworld, and I can kind of like open this even and go, oh, um, Thompson is loping along. He's striding nicely around first, leaning into his run. Um, and that has, that's just a, a fantastic pictorial sentence, leaning into his run. I love that so much. So he's just he's just one of those foundational writers uh, for me who I find real joy in thinking about on the project level, like this whole kind of system that you're talking about, mm -hmm. but also just kind of like in the grind and kind of like the elbow grease of how you move from one clause to another. And I love that he's a Bronx guy, you know. <laughs> I just I, I really do. Geography is fate, and I I like um I like that little bit in this. So even you know when parts of the Bronx pop up in the underworld, I feel like somebody's kind of like standing up for the borough and being counted and i don't know i like that the polo grounds was gone long before i grew up but i spent a a little time in my life living not too far from the polo grounds i lived on 157th and riverside you know manhattan's pretty narrow up there so you're not too far being right off the hudson from um where the polo grounds used to be which is right near this footbridge that you could take to cross into yankee stadium and the bronx and all of that um the 155th street bridge i think but i've walked past where the polo grounds used to be so many times and you know my imagination is kind of like put the stadium there and had a game going on and what i love about the performance is having that feeling done but a thousand times better like i would walk past where the polo grounds used to be and kind of like you know build the stadium and have people going in and have a game going on where you kind of are making sense of what's happening as you pass by but nowhere near as as well with kind of like the Quicksilver chat and appearance of, of all of these characters. But it made me remember actually how hard it is to get a voice right. And once you get a voice right, to come back to it a beat later and have that voice still feel right. I'm kind of amazed by the consistency of such like a, a 
uh, it's, it's not a good word. I mean, consistency is a good word. It's good to be consistent. But <laughs> I, I was just really amazed by how they held the notes of their characters, you know? And that's where I think I get something wrong in their performance in that I take it almost as being soloing, like they're taking turns soloing, but then you think about the end of Hotel California and you, you like cringe or something like that. Um, but it's not solo work, right? It's kind of like, it's this fugue, it's this kind of like tapestry and it's a commitment to occupying these other consciousnesses, not for the line, but for like the two, three hours of the performance and also their endurance. I've taught a few times Allen Ginsberg's Howl, and whenever I teach it, I make us all read it so that people understand that part of what's essential about Howl is the physical experience of the exhaustion of going all the way through it and kind of like, you know, the, the, the resistance and the type of like physiological and vocational integrity it takes to keep hitting those notes, keep hitting Frank's voice, keep hitting the narration. The narration, too, is kind of amazing because it's teleological. You're heading someplace and you have to be. And so it's kind of like this glorious increment of Americana that is at one point and in one sense like cherished, but in another sense, and this is where the sense of shadows, I think, comes from in that text, it's being investigated by the presence of Hoover, by the changing kind of conjugation of Cotter's presence among all of these other people and how Cotter's sense of comfort and even kind of like immediateness changes by who he's in relation to. And I think that that's something that's really important to keep in mind with who Cotter is, that how Cotter is, is entirely um, dependent, not on what's happening in the game, but on the people who are immediately around him. And if that's not a New York story, I don't know kind of what is we're made by our proximities which influences greatly our values and and how we vote and how we trust and how we love but cotter feels obscure danger here the guy is making him visible shaming him in his prowler's den isn't it strange how their common color jumps the space between them nobody saw cotter until the vendor appeared black rays phasing from his hands one popular Negro and crowd pleaser, one shifty kid trying not to be noticed. In 2000, James Wood, the famous literary critic, wrote a identification slash takedown of hysterical realism, and he included Underworld in that, and Zadie Smith's White Teeth as well, and sort of argued that there was this genre of big, sprawling, technically impressive novels that pushed relation and interconnectedness as a way of covering up an absence of humanity and emotion. Do you feel like that criticism still stands up or did it did it ever? I don't think it stands up for those two books. I would have to hear it argued but in other cases. Um, I think those two books are both really thrilling. Maybe the problem is that I'm also <laughs> a perpetrator <laughs> of this unpleasant <laughs> trend. I mean, I think James Woods is a very smart guy, but um, I, I can't agree with him. I, I mean, I, when you say hysterical realism, my first thought is that sounds great. And maybe that says it all. I mean, I'm interested in hysteria. <laughs> I mean, are 19th century novels hysterical realism? I mean, what we call sprawling and overdone is looks like nothing if you sit down and read all 12 of the interrelated Trollope books, the Palliser and the Barchester series. I mean, 
Dickens is totally hysterical. I just feel like maybe that's a dislike of of that kind of novel writing. But to me, that sort of fiction is just taking adva- full advantage of all that fiction can do, which frankly, I sometimes feel is not done enough. And certainly what I'm interested in doing. I think with art that all types of criticism based on artistic appraisal stands. I don't know if it stands up, but it stands and you kind of like you take it, mm-hmm. you process it, and then you you move on. The, if anything, um, a problem we have in art in these days is an absence of kind of rigorous criticism. Yeah. Whether, whether you embrace the criticism as kind of like a way to understand the work or not is is uh, is different but I, I i never want criticism especially good criticism to disappear and you know i don't want our good critics to disappear for me though i think it's really difficult particularly at the turn of this new century to be really confident in what we mean by interrelatedness and human connection anyway and when we use those terms i forget when when james wood published that it's 2000. It's 2000, right? Yeah, exactly. So so right there where we're really starting to put a lot of pressure, almost kind of like the way you would put melisma on a note with that idea of connectiveness and interrelatedness anyway. And I find that these texts are part of that. So no, I don't, I don't worry about that. I think that though basically from the, the legacy of the 20th century is to be skeptical of good technique. Mm. And the next step after being skeptical of good technique is to think that it leads to some type of disassociation from feeling. I don't, I mean, I'm a poet first and foremost, so I don't, I don't buy that. Um, And I don't think musicians buy that. But also, honestly, I mean, Underworld for me, it has a lot, it's written by a guy from the Bronx and it has the Bronx in it. Um, (laughs) You know, the Whitestone Bridge and all that type of stuff. So I don't feel disconnected from it at all. It, It seems like a big canvas painting of America from by somebody from the same borough that I'm from and that I can tell that. So it's a ad hominem observation, but I feel very connected to this text in the same way that I feel very connected to white teeth, but teach their to each their own. It's interesting to think of Woods's criticism now uh, and how that there are really no big systems novels now. And there's a lot of autofiction and yeah. like a distrust almost um city on fire tried to take a shot right yeah i think yeah and i mean like the overstory too sure, sure, kind sure, of sure. kind of fits within yeah, that yeah, too yeah. but you know like i said there's a self-consciousness about representing their perspectives that are distant from uh, and authors yeah so, i mean it, conne- it connects to what you were saying before about how you know our sort of collectiveness has fractured right right but but hopefully fractured um, with the idea of I'm the weirdest type of New Yorker, I'm a devout optimist. Um, but hopefully this <laughs> fracture will lead to a kind of reassembling and stronger, you know. Your muscles get stronger by getting torn apart and then coming back together stronger. I find that the the novel in particular is supposed to be something that we kill off now every like 15 years or or so. Maybe the idea is that the system novel is connected to kind of like the aesthetic and sociocultural values of a past, a literary and sociological past that we've rightly been kind of investigating and questioning. But 
I take my cues a lot from music and from visual art and you still want oils on canvas and you still want big canvases and you still want symphonies. And I also don't know what, how much of that is what authors want to do and how much of that is what the market allows authors to do. So, Mm -hmm. you know, for instance, I don't know if this is still the case now in fall of 2019, but you know, you'd have for many recent years, an author come with something like a autobiography or work of literary fiction, let me say. And then I'll say, well, this would be much better if you could kind of like, much better for the market if we could kind of just kind of like shade it towards memoir, Mm -hmm. right? So, So even the question of the genre of a prose text that you get by the time you see it on the shelves was maybe not even its original condition or conception. But I really like ambition. I don't worry about Don DeLillo writing a a character like Cotter, even because of what I'd said earlier about how kind of like you see how the novel, or at least this part, right? Path Go at the Wall, it ties Cotter into an interrelatedness. When you first see Cotter, he's with all these other boys. And then he's with the ah, guy who buddies up with him, right? So it's kind of like there's an interrelatedness between Cotter um, and, you know, his, his teenage uptown black self. And uh, the people at the game, which reminds me of William Carlos Williams has this poem called The Crowd. And it's, it's, it's not an individual, but rather this kind of impressionistic blend of individuals into something bigger. Artists are supposed to imagine other things and it's supposed to be a bridge towards empathy. When it's badly done, it's badly done. And may the good critics come out and say it and may the authors kind of take their hit and move on. But we have to be able to imagine ourselves outside of ourselves where we have no bridge to each other you just hope that people do it well and that they're really interested in and invested in empathy and that we have critics who know the difference between a well-rendered character and uh, a crappy character because that's important as well yeah could you speak to that shrinking i guess of the novel in a certain way i didn't say it um Well, first of all, autofiction is not necessarily small. I mean, no, look okay. at Knasgard. And autofiction is not new. Look at Proust. Right. And that's a very sprawling, you know, I think you could call that hysterical realism. And it's also autofiction. Personally, if, if fiction becomes autofiction and nothing but autofiction is acceptable, I will not be writing fiction anymore. I am not interested in writing that kind of work. It's not what excites me. As a reader, I enjoy it because I can't tell whether it's autofiction or not. I'm looking for the same things I always look for in fiction, which are access to worlds that I I couldn't otherwise experience, i.e. the consciousnesses of other human beings. So, you know, Zadie Smith has a great essay about this in the New York Review of Books, where she basically, and I feel a lot of kinship with her approach to writing. And she basically says, you know, she is driven by curiosity as a reader, you know, first and then as a writer to imagine her way into lives that are nothing like hers. That's what fiction is for her. And that's I feel identically. And so I feel that if if done responsibly, anyone theoretically should be able to write about anyone. Now, the proof is in the pudding. And I'm not saying that every time someone does this, it's a great success. But I tend to write more often from a male than a female point of view. And I am interested in writing across race and everything else. 
because that is, to some degree, imagining oneself in a different kind of life naturally takes me into different sorts of backgrounds of all sorts. One of the protagonists of A Visit from the Goon Squad, although he doesn't, it, it, he's, he's sort of rejected this side of himself, but he's clearly Latino. Mm-hmm. So it has to be okay if done sensitively and responsibly, or I'm going to have to find a new job. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess we'll find out. And I, and I'm, I also think that one can't expect to just do this and get a pat on the head. Exactly. I mean, there will always be people who will say, you got it wrong, and their opinion is right. In other words, it's not about saying, no, I did it right. It, everyone is right. It, and I've had, I've had plenty of people say they didn't like all kinds of things about my work, and they were right. And James Woods is right. Everyone is entitled to their opinion. <laughs> the work is out there, and then chemistry is what engenders responses all across the board. So I, it's not that I, I feel like there shouldn't be or can't be pushback about these things. I think it's a moment of enormous reckoning over these matters, which is absolutely essential, and I could not be happier about it. I feel like the sort of default predominance of white male fiction writers may be at an end. We'll see. And I think that's all to the good in that more inclusion means more quality. More voices always means more quality. Yeah. And evolution in the form. Absolutely. Inevitably. Like that is always the hope is that Absolutely. But as the minute someone starts saying, you can't do this and you can't do that, my reaction is, um, I think I'm going to try. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One thing that is interesting about Underworld to me and, the, and a, a reminder of something else that fiction does that is so important is that it gave me a sense of what it was like to be in America during the Cold War mm. in a way that, that no amount of history reading can do. And speaking as someone who's done, I, I did, I've done a huge amount of research about World War II. This is long after I read Underworld, but um, for a, a novel that I recently published, and I found in terms of fi- kind of getting at the vernacular, the expressions, and even the sort of habits of mind and cultural assumptions about any moment, I found fiction to be one of the most useful cultural documents that I could get my hands on. That's in the end, I think, even beyond all of the sort of the pyrotechnics of the writing and the the remarkable sort of swerving in and out of various consciousnesses, what I'm really left with more than anything else from that book is just a sense of what it was like to be alive during the Cold War. And that is another amazing thing that fiction can do. And, And I think, you know, in terms of sort of the historical project of the book i think that is partly what what he was going for that was the part where the 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 work became something different it became not just about the history of the moment but it became about how we imagine things and how they mean things and i wouldn't be surprised if for delillo at this point you know j edgar hoover and jackie gleason toots and frank were actually there Um, i know that there are parts of my life now where i remember them a particular way and my parents have to remind me that they didn't happen that way, but they still feel like they most certainly happened that way. And this is one of those moments I imagined for him, though I can't speak for him. Yeah. Well, feelings are facts. 
Here we go. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save.